Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hidden Histories. For this episode, I was delighted to be able to speak with Marion Turner about her prize-winning biography on the poet, diplomat and literary icon Geoffrey Chaucer called Chaucer, A European Life. The book is an entirely fresh perspective on the life of the man who has dominated the English literary history, in which Marion analyses not only Chaucer's verse, but the places, faces and spaces that influenced his throughout his remarkably cosmopolitan and European life. I've been listening to this on audiobook as I walk my dog, and her descriptions of the world in the 14th century are so immersive, I do recommend it as a way of enjoying her book. But for now, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Marion Turner, welcome to Hidden Histories. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. And thank you for coming to talk about your fantastic book, Chaucer, A European Life, which is the first biography of Chaucer, am I right in saying a decade? Yes. Well, I mean, longer than a decade for a full biography. It's been about 30 years. There's been smaller books about parts of his life. But yeah, it's been a long time since it was a full biography and never won by a woman before. That's amazing. And you were also one of the um, nominees for the Wilson History Prize, which is a huge, huge achievement. So congratulations. Thank you very much. And I love the title of European Life because you really draw on the fact that Chaucer it wasn't it's this isn't just about his his prose. It is about his grander position within medieval the medieval world and his role um, in the royal household as well yeah so it's about his his life from cradle to grave but I haven't written it in a cradle to grave way I've tried to write it through different places and spaces that that matter to him and I think you picked out there I suppose the focus on the life in that it's about the life as well as the poetry but the European is also of course a very important part of that title because I think that If people only know a little bit about Chaucer, one of the things that they are likely to know about him is this idea that he's the father of English literature. And that gives people a very specific idea about who he was and and what he did. And I think there are a number of problems with that. But in particular, it it tends to give the sense that he was nationalistic and that his relevance is, is confined to an English canon, that he is at the head of that English canon. And for Chaucer, that would have been a really, really extraordinary way of thinking about what he did and who he was. He travelled very, very widely. 
and he spoke many languages. His literary influences were mainly not written in English. He mainly read French poetry, Latin poetry, Italian poetry. Those were the texts that that mattered to him. And he moved in an international cultural world as well as in an international political world. So he was very much a European figure. And I think it's important to, to recognize that the fact that he wrote in English, that he is an English poet, doesn't make him not European. For him, that would have been a crazy idea, that being English meant not being European. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to go back onto that idea about the spaces, because you Mm. do build the book around a selection of physical and metaphorical spaces that were personal to Chaucer. Yeah. And that begins in in medieval London, and he was born in the Vintry Ward. Is that that's that's correct? Yes, yes. And and that was his early life. And one thing that I found incredibly immersive was the way that you draw the reader or the listener, in my respect, because I've actually been listening to it into that world. And it's 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 fascinating to be able to imagine that space that he was born into. Can you explain what that space would have would have been like? Yes. So Chaucer was the son of a vintner, a wine merchant. And as a result, he was brought up in a very international part of London. So Vintry Ward at that time had more immigrants in it than any other ward in London, for example. It's one of the wards that borders the the River Thames partly because, of course, it's an import trade, so it's really important to have access to that river. And later in his life, Chaucer worked on the river in the customs house, so looking out onto that river. And I think that's really symbolically important to think of Chaucer on that border, that he's seeing products coming in that had come from all over the world, that some of the products that were coming to London originated in Indonesian islands, for instance, and came across the Silk Road through different European routes and into London. And then watching the things that went out as well and when he later on worked in the wool custom he was Mm. very involved in that you know wool is mainly what England is sending out to the rest of the world so it's a it's a cosmopolitan place to grow up if you're reasonably well off which he was his family was there are shops that are selling spices pepper fabrics things that have come from all over the place it's also if we're thinking about what it's like to be brought up there it's, it's rooted in lots of different kinds of communities. So if you're brought up there, your parents, in, in Chaucer's case, are part of a particular trade, a particular guild. You're also a member of a parish. Chaucer would also have gone to a school. He would have lived in his, in his local community. So there's lots of, of close-knit and interlocking different kinds of communities. And for Chaucer, being born in that mercantile environment really matters as well because of the the particular kinds of of access it gave him to languages. So it was normal at this time for an educated man to be trilingual in English, French and Latin. But Chaucer also picked up Italian. That meant that later on, when he had positions in the royal household, he was the person that was chosen to go on missions to Italy. This is late. He's born in the 1340s. Later in the 1370s, he was sent on two missions to Italy. And almost certainly he was chosen to go on those missions because of this these two strings to his bow that he has. So he works in the royal household. So he has access to the missions in that way. But because of his mercantile background, he knew Italian because there were so many Italian merchants in the city of London. And he was clearly someone who must have picked up languages easily and going to Italy was 
really life-changing for him. It was also, it changed what English poetry could do in all kinds of ways, because his reading of, of Italian poetry enabled him to create all kinds of new English poetic forms that were inspired by that poetry. When he went to Italy, he, he wasn't going in order to get manuscripts. He just happened to do that on the side. He was going for reasons of trade and politics. But that those origins in in the mercantile city of London were of ongoing importance to him. And you mentioned that he was born into quite a wealthy background, which is really why he was able to find a position in in the royal household. How did he manage to get there? Well, I mean, there's a certain amount of speculation in that. So his his first job was as a page. He was a page boy for Elizabeth, Elizabeth de Burr, who was married to Lionel of Clarence, one of the king's sons. And then shortly after that, he worked so he worked for Lionel and Elizabeth and then later on he worked for Edward III. So so his father had had positions connected to the king as one of the as a butler of the king which didn't mean the kind of butler that we might think of from later eras but it meant he was partly in charge of provisioning some of the royal households with wine and partly he did that position in Southampton which is probably where the Chaucer family were when the plague hit so he was responsible for choosing wines and sending them to certain of the king's castles and palaces so his father had those royal had some royal connections which is probably how Chaucer got in, got his first kind of break into um, a noble household. But it's also the case that there was mixing between merchants and arist- aristocracy and, and nobility. You know, sometimes we think of these things as, as very separate, but actually it wasn't uncommon for, for instance, important city merchants to be knighted or for impoverished aristocrats to marry into the city. So they give the title, the people, the merchants give the money kind of thing. So there were minglings between those those seemingly different worlds. I really love the way that, um, that it was around that time when he was under the in the employ of Elizabeth and Lionel that his first appearance in the records comes up. And he's, he's effectively a sort of clothes horse. Um, yeah, yeah. What, what, what was that? Yes. Yeah, so we have a huge volume of life records for Chaucer. I think that in itself is, is something which surprises people because when people heard I was writing a biography of Chaucer, people often said, oh, someone from the 14th century, is there, there must be hardly any information. You say, actually, there is so much information. We know so much more about Chaucer than we do about, say, Shakespeare. And that's largely because Chaucer was a civil servant and the English have good bureaucracy and good records. So we know a lot about Chaucer. Um, though most of the records are factual records, you know, that we don't have things like diaries or, you know, memoirs or personal letters, th- those kinds of things from for anyone from that, that era. But we have a lot of records. The first record seems to be, and I think people in the past always thought it was a relatively dry record. You know, it says that um, his employer bought some clothes for him, which was a very normal thing for employers to do at the time. And you people, it's interesting that his his first record, it's nothing to do with being a poet or anything like that. Um, Just someone buying some clothes for him. But I thought, well, I wonder what exactly these clothes were. And so then I went and I started to look up other records, chronicles, people talking about these clothes. And I found out that this poltock that he was bought at the time was actually a completely scandalous item of clothing. And that this is a very, very early reference to it. And then when you find what other people are saying about it, they're describing the poltock as a very short tunic that's then with, there are kind of leggings, two coloured leggings would tend to be laced up to it. And chroniclers say that this is a really disgraceful 
graceful way of dressing young men at the time because the clothes were accentuating their bodies in an indecent way. And one chronicler writing in the in the 1360s said that young men were going around dressed in such a provocative way that this was the cause of the plague, that God had sent the second wave of the plague in order to punish people for being so indecent and not obeying proper propriety. So in fact, this first image that we have of Chaucer is that he is a fashion plate wearing these new outrageous items of clothing that many people at the time thought were were disgraceful. And I like this anecdote a lot, I I think for, for two different reasons. Because first of all, you think the older establishment people criticise young people and say, look, it's all their fault. Look at the outrageous clothes they wear and the awful ways they behave. Everything's their yeah. fault. And this happens, you know, in every age. And, and though this is an extreme case, you know, I think actually saying that they cause the plague because of their, their clothes is, is an ex- extreme case. But it's not dissimilar <laughs> to things we see, you know, in every era. But on the other hand, This is not a familiar situation. When we think about this is a young man who doesn't get to choose his own clothes. He's not making a rebellious Mm. statement himself and, you know, saying that this is what I want to wear. I'm carving out my own identity, which is what we're more familiar with teenagers doing. You know, saying I want to dress in this way. I want to become someone who's defining themselves by their generation, not being defined by adults. But that's not what's happening here. Chaucer is being defined by his employer because he lives in the great household where your employer gets to choose for you what you wear, when you eat, where you sleep. You live in that household and everything is determined by the household. As a page boy, he probably was not paid in wages. He was paid in kind and he was given access to, he was given access to people. He was given access to certain amounts of education. He was given food and clothes and a kind of education in how to behave. And he met people. So it was a really extraordinary way of existing where you lived in public. You didn't have your own room. You didn't go home. You didn't have privacy. And you have to make a huge imaginative leap. I find I have to make a huge imaginative leap to try to grasp what this must have been like for for a young person at at this time. And so those dual things, the the way in which we think, I completely relate to this and this is completely alien. For me, that is what is so interesting about writing about the past, reading about the past, the frisson between the I recognise this, I see myself in this, and then the need to step back from that and say, no, I have to make a huge imaginative leap. Things are not the same. I need to try to get myself inside that headspace. Absolutely. And I think an example of that is in the household, because something you talk about is the actual physical space of the household and how that is so different and how you have all these interconnecting rooms and where people would have slept, which spaces were private, which spaces were not private and how that would have been handled by by people like young people like Chaucer. What do you think that that experience would have been like for him at such a young and impressionable age? Well, I think people did have a different set of expectations around the private and the public. So it's so automatic for us to think that you need privacy, you need a private room. Sometimes you need to get away from it all, you need a lock on the door. How can you be creative if you're not able to have peace and quiet and sit on your own in a room? And, And that's not how people think in every era by any means. So you know in a i think in his own natal household he would not have expected to have 
privacy. He would not have expected to go to his own room. He would be used to living with others, with you know, it's probably sleeping in the same room as parents, apprentices. That would be a normal way of living. There's a big difference when he goes to the great household in that he is no longer you know, part of the family that is in charge. He's now a small fish in a much bigger household. He's serving them. It's Elizabeth and Lionel that matter. He is only there. You know, when he's getting dressed up, he's being dressed in order to adorn their public spaces. It's he's not at the centre, and that's a big, a big shift. But I think there was a general feeling amongst all people really at this time that it was it was a productive thing to live with others, that you create things through collaboration that you needed to talk to other people and relate to them. And there were changes happening at this time where people were more interested in separating spaces. But that didn't tend to be about making sure you had your own space just for you, but controlling who had access to different kinds of spaces. Mm. So the king, for instance, stopped dining so much in public and would dine with a smaller group of people. But he certainly didn't expect to dine just with his own you know, nuclear family or on his own mm. or, or anything like that. So there were, there were certainly changes in terms of how people felt that they wanted to retreat from a complete sense of, of the public. But at the same time, I think there was a, a, a great acceptance of, of the idea that you were always with other people, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. And also that idea that access was a privilege. So, uh, you know, access into a, an, into a more private space of the head of the household demonstrated your place in the grand chain of it and in the entire in the entire construct of that household i found that really interesting and one of the anecdotes about how young pe- young people would probably be forced to have sex outside rather than in this household i think that that was yeah that was really interesting really hard for people to find that private space i think and and i think also also i think what's what i found very interesting was so there's a part in one of Chaucer's poems the house of fame where he talks, so, so this is written later in life when he he has a kind of apartment over Aldgate in London and he's working in the customs house. And he writes in this poem, and in this poem there's an avatar who is not exactly Chaucer himself, but is a version of Chaucer and he's called Geoffrey and he's a poet and he works in accounts in the day and then goes home to his apartment at night. But he talks about, this, about himself going home and then he's being berated by his guide figure who says to him, you know, you go home and then you just sit there you know, alone at your books, dumb as any stone, and you've got no ideas, and you know your your look is da- is dazed, your senses are all numbed, and you forget to go to the doorway and talk to other people. Your neighbours are there. Go and talk to them. That's where the stories are, and it's this indictment on the idea of being on your own. The idea if you just go to go to be on your own, you can't actually think creatively and it's a it emphasizes the idea that actually you need to go to thresholds and doorways and mingle with others and get inspiration not only from reading books but also from conversation I think that's a really important moment for Chaucer yeah and and as you quite rightly point out was is really what influenced him and his writing and his poetry is that experience and his life experience and his his imaginative process was so greatly came from all of that experience and that dialogue with the people around him. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a real, there's a combination between, on the one hand, he's a very literary poet, you know, so he is incredibly well read. His texts are full of references to sources, and you certainly appreciate them on lots of different levels, depending on how well you understand the sources that he's playing with and parodying and imitating and, and so on. But at the same time, he also is is a poet who is referring to things that that places he'd been to, things he'd seen. There's a real mix between the real life spaces. So in the Canterbury Tales, you know, for instance, he sets the Canterbury Tales in in the beginning in a real inn, the Tabard Inn, which really existed, and the host, Harry Bailey, is a real person. Now, of course, the versions that he writes are, are different. You know, he's not saying this is this is this is the real Harry Bailey. It's a version of him which is different. And the Canterbury Tales themselves come from lots and lots of different sources. But he's playing with us and saying this is this is a, a version of reality that is separated from it, but it is it does have some connection with that world that's around you, while also having connections with Ovid's tales or Boccaccio's Decameron, that you have to to try to think very much in the round, both in terms of of the actual historical moment in which Chaucer lived and the text which he was reading at that time. And it's it's one of those experiences that I wanted to draw now, and that's the idea of the cage, which I think he talks about is it in The Knight's Tale. And that was, as you say, likely inspired by his experience in captivity whilst he was serving under Edward III in the Hundred Years' War. Could you tell me a, a bit about his experience and, and how you think that shaped that metaphorical space yeah so on Chaucer's first trip abroad he was taken prisoner so he's fighting in the hundred years war he was taken prisoner and then he was ransomed by the king and and went home we don't know for exactly how long he was a prisoner and when he was a prisoner if you were taken prisoner in in war in this way it didn't mean you were thrown into a dungeon and chained up. It was a relatively genteel kind of imprisonment. It was very. It was really one of the main things that war was for was for taking prisoners um, and getting money, getting ransom money. That was a very standard part of war at the time. I mean, I found it very interesting just to think about the fact that Chaucer had this experience of losing his liberty because however genteel it is if you are a prisoner that must have a real effect on your psyche to know what it means to be constrained like that by by a force outside yourself again it's something that's very difficult to imagine when I haven't been through it myself thank goodness you know but I I tried a lot to try to to think about that experience of of constraint and in his poetry so in the Knight's Tale he writes about the knights who are who are imprisoned by by Theseus, and in contrast to the the source text, which is by Boccaccio, Boccaccio's Tosseda, he he inserts lots of references to the fact that they are not ransomed, and for a medieval audience, it's a it's a terrible thing not to ransom your prisoners. You know, it's a really um, not okay not to ransom and he talks about the fact that they are condemned perpetually and that they don't have this this option of ransom which he must always have known was on the was on the agenda so i think there's there's different ways in which he thinks about the experience of constraint because because when he's writing about that kind of imprisonment it's a terrible thing you know not to have the opportunity, the the hope of of liberty, and he really emphasises that by putting in these two references to ransom. But I think there are other moments where, when he's talking about the cage, he's talking about it as a productive form of constraint. So, 
in my chapter on the cage, I I compared the way that he talks about the cage with the way that his that Boethius, which is the main source for his his metaphors of the cage, the way that Boethius talks about the cage. And for Boethius, the cage is something that you know, we have to escape and we have to get to the woods where we are free. And Chaucer inverts that on the number of occasions when he uses the image of the cage. And he talks about the the cage, in fact, as a a lovely place of luxury and talks about um, animals who want to escape the cage as animals who, are, who, who want to go off and be adulterous and eat kind of um, raw food and um, get away from civilised standards and, and life. And so in some ways, I think in, in those moments, he sees the cage as something which is about a an acceptance of the constraint in our own in our own lives and that on a one level the idea that we accept constraint beneath god we accept the idea that we are subjected to god and then in a more pragmatic way also the idea that we accept the constraints of living in society that we don't live in nature that he actually thinks it's a good thing to live in society and to take the the problems of that he doesn't want philosophically to separate himself from society and to be thinking about things somehow away from the real day-to-day problems of life. He thinks those we have to engage with the world as it is. You also compare it to love as well, which I found really interesting, and how the idea of being constrained in love and captive in love. Yeah, so the idea of love as an imprisonment, which was another real trope of the time. And so, yeah, the idea that love is a prison and that you're constrained by your by your mistress because it is almost always a male subjectivity in those kinds of poems talking about that kind of that kind of constraint so i think that those those images those metaphors of the idea that we are always being constrained by others we don't live alone we're always under subjection in a variety of ways and sometimes that kind of subjection is something that that seems to take away our our freedom or our our ability to think clearly, but at other times it's something that we have to work with productively because we need to collaborate with others. We need to think about our relationships with others. So he was he was on this campaign led by Edward III and the Black Prince and Henry Duke of Lancaster, which was ended at the Treaty of Bretigny. Mm-hmm. Um, he would have experienced France as it was at this point, which was a country that was massively ravaged by war and you know, having suffered multiple chevaches and the, the, the land being torched. Um, he did continue to work under, under Edward III in his service. What did he do from this point? And wasn't this the point where he started to travel further to places like Navarre, which was quite influential for him? Yes. So this early trip where he's traveling as part of an army and fighting is quite anomalous in various ways, because although he traveled very, very widely and frequently in his life, his travels were almost always about talking and diplomacy, not fighting. You know, he usually was not interested in trying to sort things out through fighting. So he went on trips for a number of different reasons, often to negotiate peace treaties, to talk about marriage alliances, to discuss the wool trade, all those kinds of things. 
And I think that that's that's very important in in Chaucer's work in general. That he thinks you you achieve things through discussion, through compromise. You, you move away from kind of absolutes and idealism. I think you also move away from from violence. You know, that's not usually the way really to to sort things out. So his his trip to Navarre is indeed one which I find particularly interesting. So he went to Navarre in 1366. And we know very little about that trip. So we have a, a record in which he was, you know, date, a record from Navarre, which is his safe conduct, that the king gave him a safe conduct to travel around Navarre um, with some horses and some attendants for, for a period of time. And really, that was all people knew about it. And so this was another example where I tried to to think about, well, how how can I find out more about this? And so I looked at things like the other documents that were being issued by the Chancellery of Navarre in that week and tried to read up a lot about what was Navarre like at this time, what was going on at this time. And I found out that it was just an extremely interesting time and moment to go to Navarre, that while Chaucer was there, Navarre was invaded, for instance. At, at that time, there was a there was a very dramatic conflict going on between Aragon and Castile, and Navarre was caught in the middle. And then even more interesting for me was reading about the Navarrese community. So as is is fairly well known, the Iberian Peninsula was a much more culturally diverse place than most of Europe at this time, that parts of the Iberian Peninsula were under Muslim rule at this time. And that Navarre, while it was under Christian rule, it had substantial um, Jewish and Muslim populations, communities at this time. So this was the first time and really the only time that Chaucer went to a country and you know spent a few weeks there where there were really substantial communities of people of non-Christian religions. And that at this time, while you know, things were certainly not ideal and there were all kinds of problems, but compared to many places in Europe, it was a reasonably successful example of those different different communities living together. Navarre was um, ruled by that rather shifty character, wasn't it? Charles of Navarre, who was always on always on the opposite side, but claiming to be on the side of yeah, the... Yeah. So he was on the side of the English, but then he was secretly on the side of the French and yeah. then secretly on the side of the English. I think he's he's quite funny. Yeah. He's one of my favourite <laughs> characters, Charles the yeah. Bad. Um, yeah, and Chapel's the Bad, Pedro the Cruel. There's yeah, a lot of, um, yeah. of those <laughs> Spanish characters. And like, you do talk about, um, slightly off topic, you do talk about the fratricide that happens in Castile. And I do find that moment when Pedro the Cruel is killed by his brother Enrique Trastamara very Game of Thrones-esque because they are literally at a camp and they have this sort of match between them. Um, brother to brother and then Enrique actually ends up um, murdering Pedro but it's all it's all very dramatic I find this the the history of the Spanish at this point is full of um, excitement yeah Um, and Chaucer talks specifically about um, about Pedro in the in the monk's tale which is really interesting and your various manuscripts suggest that some things were were changed in that poem at a later date because um, of a of a royal marriage that made it impolitic to um, to be so critical of certain people. Oh, interesting! But if, but that's interesting in itself because, of course, John of Gaunt was always in support of of 
Pedro and his and his daughter Constance with his with his um, marriage to Constance and therefore claims Castile. So yes, but then later on, um, there was one of their descendants marries a descendant of Enrique. I can't remember the exact details right now, but 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 things change later. Oh, that that's interesting. Okay, <laughs> so I wanted also to talk to you, which is moving on slightly, but the but the women in Chaucer's life and how he writes women. Mm. and his influences and and in particular his daughter because his daughter is a character that you um discovered more about in your research and i just wanted to i wanted to ask you how you uncovered her and and who she was and and how she lived her life and you know how um she might have been shaped by her her father's work yeah so um there, so we know about three of Chaucer's children. Um, so Thomas, about whom we know a lot. Um, Lewis, about whom we, we only know a little, but Chaucer wrote a text for him. And then there's there's another reference to him. And then Elizabeth, um, about whom you know, no one has really been interested before, hardly, hardly at all. Um, so there is a reference to Elizabeth, um, to Elizabeth being becoming a nun first of all in St Helen's Bishop's Gate and then at Barking and people had just had just very much gone over those references and said, oh maybe she was Chaucer's daughter maybe she wasn't who knows I mean she clearly was when you look at the references um it's Elizabeth Chaucer and John of Gaunt who at this point is very much Chaucer's patron is um was making the payments for her doing it at the same time as her cousin who was the the daughter of John of Gaunt's um, long-term mistress, later wife, Catherine Swinford. Um, and Elizabeth Chaucer was a very, I think, uh, someone about whom, while we don't know much about her specifically, what I was able to do was find out a lot more about the places that she lived. So, and again, this was something which, by looking around the reference, around the, the records, it helped a lot. You're just kind of taking the reference out of the life records and putting it back in its own context, thinking, well, what was St. Helen's Bishop's Gate? What was it like? And then I found out a lot of things about that nunnery. And I think that, again, today, people tend to think of nuns and nunneries in in quite stereotypical ways. Um, and in actual fact, I think that people became nuns for a variety of different reasons and had different kinds of lives as nuns. But if you were, uh, if you say were running a a nunnery, you really had to be a very good businesswoman. Um, They owned a lot of property. They had to, they were not removed from the world in that way because they had to negotiate various things. You know, there are, and there are examples of, for instance, um, nunneries which owned brothels and taverns and and things like that and you had the rent from from those kinds of places um if you were interested in education you very likely had more opportunities to read books and study as a nun than as a wife in in many cases you know not in every single case but in general and you had more time because you were not constantly having to bear children um so there were various things about nuns' lives that were, I think, quite desirable in comparison to the life of a wife at at this time. And the nunneries that Elizabeth Chaucer went into were very wealthy nunneries. Um, 
St Helens Bishopsgate, first of all, in the city of London, very close to where her father was living at the time, and then Barking, which was a notch up again, um, a very wealthy nunnery. And again, if you look at the, the records, you see that they're, they're getting figs delivered to eat and things like that. Um, and I think they they were able to enjoy a pleasant lifestyle. That doesn't mean that they weren't religious, you know, that they that they weren't truly dedicated to their vocation and to prayer, which I think you know, certainly most were. But there are examples of things like um of, of say that I found these very interesting records of St. Helens Bishopsgate where the nuns are being told that, you know, they shouldn't dance so much and they should only dance and have parties on particular occasions, not all the time. They shouldn't have so many people staying overnight. And, you know, they were clearly having quite a quite a fun lifestyle. Um, and again, that why not? That doesn't mean that they weren't dedicated to God and to prayer as well. well that's, that's really interesting. And I think it's, it's fascinating to... Um, to, to to understand that this wasn't just a community of incredibly pious women who led an incredibly pious and um, conventional life. I think they had a lot more opportunity and, as you say, um, very good businesswomen and they had to um, deal with quite a lot of wealth. I think that's, yeah, that's fascinating and not something that one would naturally consider when you thought about a nunnery in the 14th century. Um, yeah. I should say, I think there's so many things about medieval women that do surprise people. You know, I mean, Chaucer's wife went on working for all her life. You know, after she was married, she didn't think that meant she had to give up her job. You know, she went on being a lady-in-waiting, often living in a household apart from Chaucer. That was not unusual. But people are often surprised to hear that about medieval women. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, she was very she was very dedicated within the royal household, wasn't she? Um, as was her sister Catherine Swinford. Um, so, uh, speaking about Philippa Chaucer, um, how, how does he? Do you think that he? She was inspiration to him in in some ways in his writing, um, and also some other influences, female influences, like as you previously mentioned, Elizabeth de Burr, the Countess of Ulster. Um, how do you think he writes the women that? lived around him yeah so I think that so Philippa it's it's very hard to 
to get a handle on what his personal relationship with his wife was like. I mean, very hard, impossible. Um, I mean, it, it, it seems that they were not always, always living together. Um, again, that, that's not unusual. That doesn't mean that it was a disastrous marriage, but it does seem that she preferred often to be living in her sister's households as well as um, in the royal households in which she was working. Um, they certainly stayed on good enough terms to you know, have children and Chaucer would tend to you know, collect her allowances and pass them on to her. There were, there doesn't seem to have been a, a, a complete breach, but it does seem that they lived fairly separate lives. Um, he, he had, I mean, all kinds of, of interesting kind of semi-patronage relationships with, with women. Again, when we talk about patronage, there's no evidence that Chaucer was ever paid a penny for any of his writing. And I think that suited him in many ways because he was able to write the things that he felt like writing rather than writing what he was told to write. And he he several times writes about the problems of poets having to write what they're told to write. Um, but at the same time, there are these kind of quasi-patron figures. So people, so these important women such as Elizabeth, um, his first employer, Queen Anne, to whom he makes an oblique reference in um, the prologue, The Legend of Good Women, where he talks about the poem being given to the Queen at Altum or at Sheen. Doesn't mean she necessarily saw the poem, but she may she may well have. His first long poem was written about the death of, of Blanche of, of Lancaster, John of Gaunt's first wife. So these important noble women are certainly circling around the, the periphery of his of his poetry. Um, he also, of course, had a had a mother who, again, we know a certain amount about, who was a property owner, who inherited wealth, who you know, was was again someone who had a certain amount of, of independence and he was surrounded by independent women. I mean, the other woman that, you know, we it's, it's important to mention is Cecily Champagne, who made an accusation of raptus rape against Chaucer. Um, and this is a case which is, is obviously really disturbing. Um, and what we know about it is that she she withdrew her accusation of raptus in return for being paid off. And there's a lot of debate about what this means, about what this relates to. Does it relate to a sexual rape in the past? Some people thought it related to abduction. There were different there were there are different examples of people making accusations of raptus in ways that are quite different to to, to things that would happen today. Recently, another critic has suggested it, it, it relates to um, wards that Chaucer had. So, so there, and there are some people who really don't want to believe that he could have been a rapist. There are other people who who would say that, well, well if we have this accusation of rape, then he definitely was a rapist. Um, and it's a, I, I think ultimately we do not know, and. Certainly, a lot of people are not are not happy with that as a, as 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 um as the the summary of of any case like this. But I think we do not know, and I think tying in with the things that I was just talking about, um, one thing that's another thing that's interesting about Cecily Champagne is that she 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 went to she she made a case, you know, she in the sense of medieval women being having a certain amount of independence that people don't expect of them. You know, she came forward, she, she, um, she tried to get what she, what she, she felt she was her, was her due, some recognition of, of whatever had, had happened. And I think that in itself is interesting. 
I think that it's it's quite difficult often to to make precise connections between Chaucer's relationships with women in his own life and the way that he wrote about women. You know, so I think that again, there's been a certain strand of of commentary on Chaucer which would say. You know, for example, people would say, well, he writes so sympathetically about women, he can't possibly have been a rapist, for example, you know, or um, he was a rapist, therefore this can't really be sympathetic about women, it must be satirical. And I think that is not how biographical criticism should work, you know, and, and I don't think that you know, what people say and what people do tie up so neatly together. What I would say is that Chaucer does write extraordinarily sympathetically about women. I don't think that tells us anything about how he treated women in his own life. Um, but I think it is, you know, in my literary interests, it's absolutely fascinating to look at a character such as Crusade in Troilus and Crusade and see how different she is from the source versions, from Boccaccio's version, for instance, how he encourages us to go inside her head, to think about what it's like to be a trafficked woman, to think about what it's like to be an object of exchange, to try to grasp the limited choices that she has and the un unreasonable, unrealistic expectations that the courtly men surrounding her have of her. Or if we look at the wife of Bath, you know, that he has created there an unprecedented female figure and a woman who says you cannot expect to see fairness in the canon because all the texts have been written by men and that's mm. why they say such terrible things about women and he creates a character who comes out and says that it's quite a sort of christine de pizon type exactly yeah type mentality isn't yes. it who was obviously you know the next century but but just a few years later yeah yeah, it's that's that is that is interesting. Can I ask though, just out of interest for my my myself, is do you think that um, Trilus and Crusade was written um, with reference to John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford's relationship? I know that's a a, a rumor, but I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. No, I don't myself. I don't think that Chaucer tends to make those kinds of um, specific. Um, specific comparisons very often in his poetry and the poem comes very directly from Boccaccio's Il Filostrato and is then is then developed in various ways but I think it's a I think it's a poem which is I think it is partly a very literary poem I think it is reflecting and refracting all kinds of, of more general things that are going on at that time in the divided city of London for instance but I don't think I don't think that Troilus and Crusade are supposed to be representing real people. No, I don't. Okay, so he was um, heavily influenced by some, these these Italian um, poets like Boccaccio. Um, so, how did the emergence of the English vernacular in the thirteen sixties change his outputs of poetry, as inspired by these European poets? Yeah, so it's. It's important to note that, there, that we've always had poetry in English, that there's an unbroken tradition of poetry in English, um, and that then there is absolutely an upsurge of it in the second half of the 14th century. And at the same time, English is used more in lots of different areas in life, and it starts to be used more in, um, in Parliament, in law courts, all those kinds of things. So there's a development in the idea of the vernacular. And Chaucer is one of the poets that 
writes a great deal in English. Um, so the other 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 poets also writing a lot in English in the late 14th century include the poet of Gawain and the Green Knight, John Gower, Langland. You know, there's, there's a group of poets. Um, of course, someone like Gower writes three great poems, one in English, one in French, one in Latin. And that's more what we might expect to happen because, you know, French and Latin are still very important languages. And if you look at, say, the wills of aristocrats at this time, they're still mainly reading French texts, not English texts. And it's possible that in his youth, Chaucer may have written some poems in French, but we don't know. Um, there's you know, there's debate about that. Um, I think there's a number of really interesting things about Chaucer's choice to write, as far as we know, exclusively in English. So first of all, that this is a European trend, <laughs> paradoxically. So that Dante, you know, a generation, two generations earlier, had been writing in, in Tuscan in the Italian vernacular and saying, look, the vernacular is good enough. You know, we don't need to write in Latin. You know, I'm going to, to write in Italian. And then Boccaccio um, is another example of a, a poet writing in his vernacular. And these were poets that were hugely, hugely influential on Chaucer. So partly there's this sense that in different countries, people are saying, OK, we're going to write in our in our local languages. <clears throat> and what happens if you write in your vernacular is that you can't reach so many people internationally as you could if you if you wrote in Latin or French, which was very much an international language of culture. Um, but of course, you can reach a more varied group within your own country. You can reach more women and you can reach a broader range of classes. It's not the case that you're suddenly reaching everyone, that peasants are reading Chaucer's poetry there. They are not. But you but you you do increase your your reach, and that's an, an ongoing thing that you you increase the sense of how many people can can read you. But I think what's also interesting is that the kind of poetry that Chaucer chooses to write, because as I said, there's this unbroken tradition of poetry in English, but a lot of the poetry that he would have been familiar with in English was a, a certain kind of um, of romance, for instance. Um, the first long poem that Chaucer writes in English, the Book of the Duchess, is in a genre called the Dite Amoureuse. So it's a French love narrative genre. Important examples are uh, Guillaume de, de Machaut's texts, um, which with which Chaucer was very familiar. They're important influences. So this is a particular kind of poem. It's quite a courtly poem, and people would be familiar with hearing it read out um, in French and suddenly hearing it in English. English sounds very different from French. It's an accentual syllabic language with stress patterns that French doesn't have. It, it sounds different, you know, in your in your ear. Um, suddenly writing it in English. Is a, is a strikingly new thing. So it's not just about writing an English poem, it's about the kind of English poem that he chooses to write. And then as time goes on, Chaucer writes all kinds of different, kind, different texts in English. Generically, he has an extraordinary range. You know, he can write romance, saint's life, tragedy, short lyric poem. He writes philosophy. He, he writes all kinds of things. But also, and particularly after he's encountered the Italians, he starts to develop new verse forms and poetic lines. And he does that very much in conversation with the Italian um, poetic lines and poetic forms. So when Chaucer develops 
the new verse form of Rhyme Royal or when he develops the iambic pentameter. He's been inspired by particular verse forms and poetic lines used by the Italians, but he's then developed them in different ways for the specific English context. So when he's developing this new, these new kinds of English poetry, it's always being done in conversation with continental developments and traditions. So this was the point there was a real upsurge in his um in the in his work after this point. Was he largely focused on writing and the next sort of 35 40 years of his life or um was he still working for the crown was he because I know that he did work um partly under Richard II and he was um in John of Gaunt's retinue as well. Was did his role shift um at that at that stage? Um no. So there are lots of points at which his roles do shift and change, but it's never the case that he's wholly devoted to his writing. And for much of his life, he seems to have been this extraordinarily annoying kind of person who does a full day job and then goes home and writes the Canterbury Tales or Troilus and Crusade <laughs> in his spare time by candlelight in the evening, you know, which really makes you feel that you shouldn't be complaining about all this multitasking and all the things you have to do in um, yeah. lockdown. Um, so he in in the 1380 I mean we can really see different phases in his life and in my book I although my book isn't completely strictly chronological it is roughly chronological with three different sections and the first I think section. you can definitely follow it chronologically. Yes, I, I yeah, never got a yeah. sense that it, it didn't feel chronological. Yeah it's chronological in in general, but I, I gave myself the freedom to focus, if I was focusing on a certain place, that I could range a little bit. I could I could continue telling the story of that place, if you see what I mean, rather than having yeah, someone, and also yeah. on this day this happened, you know, that that, that yeah, could come yeah. into to a different chapter. Um, but the first section that roughly um, covers the early decades and then, so that's becoming and then being, which is when he is really a fully-fledged, poet you know working in London writing lots of his poems and then the third section which is largely the last decade or so of his life when the Canterbury Tales are dominating so in that middle section of his life he's doing all kinds of things so he's working in the customs house and he was doing keeping the accounts in his own hand he's working hard he also gets sent off on other missions and so on and he has this extraordinarily varied creative period you know so in this time he's writing dream visions he's translating Boethius's consolation of philosophy he writes Troilus and Crusade he's doing all kinds of different things and then in the later section of his life um I think he had more time to devote to poetry, but he's still always doing various bits and bobs. Um, he was clerk of the King's Works for a couple of years, which meant that he was in charge of the upkeep of various buildings, including the Tower of London. Um, he he was in the King's household at various times. He goes off on different missions for the King um, in England and abroad. But but in those last years, he seems to have been more settled in, in the Kentish area and more focused on the Canterbury Tales. But I think it's also interesting that he was always writing a great deal. But once he really got into the Canterbury Tales, he stopped writing so many different other poems. And I think that's largely because the Canterbury Tales suits him down to the ground because it allows him to incorporate lots of different styles and forms and speakers within that one text, which is the beauty of a tale collection. So something that you do draw on is that there is something problematic about Chaucer's legacy, this idea that he's the father of um, 
of English prose. What, how would you think that that should be revisited? How do you think that we should really remember him? I think we should try to think about the variety of things that he did, about what an what a interesting life he lived and about how diverse his experiences were. I mean, I suppose how I would like him to be remembered is as as a great European figure, you know, as someone who straddled all kinds of traditions and ideas, as someone who whose importance and relevance um it goes far beyond the sense of, of of nationhood, and also as someone who was innovative and experimental. I think that idea of the patriarch immediately makes him sound as if he's a, an establishment kind of figure, which is how people think about him because they think about him as someone that's taught in schools and universities, and as someone who's part of a, a kind of established canon. But above all, he was experimental and innovative. And in one of his poems, he writes about the problems of the canon. You know, the House of Fame is all about the problems of only reading the canon, of not thinking about various texts, of, you know, of, 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 of being too respectful of authority, because Chaucer is not respectful of authority. He wouldn't want people to be respectful of him as an authority. So I think I'd like people to recognise how how innovative he is, how he was doing lots and lots of new things um, and engaging with new texts. And likeable. Well, I mean, I think that there's all kinds of things that are very likeable about his poetry, about what we think we know about him. But I also think we have to be careful about that because we can't ultimately know him and people project a lot of things onto him. So, you know, there's a very famous quote by Dryden where Dryden talks about the fact that, you know, as soon as he started reading Chaucer, he found that he had a soul that was congenial to his. And because Chaucer wrote so many different things, everyone seems to be able to find what they want to in Chaucer. So different centuries have liked different Canterbury tales much more, for instance because people said, oh, look, here's the Protestant Chaucer. Here's the Catholic Chaucer. Here's the Chaucer who's every woman's friend. Here's the Chaucer who's very funny and bored you I want to go to the pub with. Here's the serious philosophical Chaucer. So whatever we like, we can can find that. But But I think actually he always keeps something back by using all of these masks, all of these narrators. And so... I think that when you are immersed in his life as I have have been it's it's hard to resist that that identification you know when you think about these extraordinarily interesting experiences he had and I traveled to lots of the places that he went and I really tried to you know walk around these Italian and Spanish towns and think about him being there and what he saw and what he read and and of course I have such enormous respect for for the way that he read for the innovations that he was able to to make and I think you know he was an incredible thinker but I also think there is a hidden part of him that we cannot get access to and in fact you cannot for anyone it may seem easier to with a if you have diaries and letters but people always keep something back don't they yeah but he's just but also you know how how ambitious and um how i suppose trusted he was to have such a long career within the royal household and and be be a delegate for all of these European affairs as well I think that that's something as you say he you know this diverse career that he had that's something that needs to be acknowledged mm. as well mm. yeah hugely impressive person um Marion I'd really love um to end the podcast with you just reading a short um section from Chaucer's works just because I find um the the conjugation of 
of the Chaucer in English so beautiful and you do it so beautifully. <laughs> so would you mind, because I know that um, sure. many listeners would enjoy that. Would you like the opening of the Canterbury Tales? Let's do the opening, yes, let's do the opening of the Canterbury Tales. Okay. One that Aprilla, with his sure suitor, the Droct of March, hath pierced to the rooter and bathed every vein in switch liqueur of which virtue engendered is the fleur. One Zephyrus eke with his sweeter breath inspired hath in every halt and heath the tender crops, and the young sun hath in the ram his half course on, and smaller fowls mark and melody that slape and alvernicked with open yea, so pricketh him nature in her courages. Than Longenfuk to goon on pilgrimages, and palmers for to sake and strange stronders to ferner howers. Couth in sondry londers, and specially from every shire's end of Ingerland to Canterbury they wend, the holy blissful martyr for to her, that hem hath holpen, wham that they were seeker. And that is just one sentence, that is just one sentence, <laughs> the opening sentence, which is extraordinary poetic achievement. It's beautiful, it's so lyrical and um, it's beautiful, thank you. Where can people buy your excellent biography of Chaucer. So Chaucer, A European Life, published by Princeton University Press. They can buy it in all good bookshops. They can get it um, both online and in real bookshops, which I think we can now go to again. It's available um, as an audiobook as well as a hardback and there will be a paperback in the autumn as well. Super. Thank you so much, Marion. Thank you for coming on Hidden Histories. Thank you, Helen. It's been my pleasure. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.